It's New Hampshire Headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirst, at nhtalkradio.com to get the back episodes of the show, including all the rest of our great programming here at the station. Excited to be joined this week by Amanda Goki, reporter over at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, AJ. Thank you for having me. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. And we're going to start off talking about butterflies, which is a nice little summary topic to, as we <laughs> as we prepare for the inevitable uh, cold snap that's coming next week. But it looks like there's a, a recruitment effort to get more people to volunteer in the conservation of some species. Yeah, that's right. So there's actually over 100 species of butterflies that live in New Hampshire, which I did not realize before reporting on this. There's about nine that are considered species of greatest conservation need. And those ones have some pretty specific programs that are dedicated to preserving their habitat and just making sure that um, the kind of plants that they depend on to survive are, are intact. So that includes species like the Carner Blue and the kinds of butterflies that live in very, very fragile habitat, like the summit near the summit of Mount Washington, which is something that came up obviously when I was reporting on the controversy over developing that that summit. These butterflies are sort of one of the things that environmentalists point to and say, you know, they could be harmed if this if this fragile um, summit area is developed. But another threat that they're facing is actually climate change. Um, and the wildlife biologist I spoke with um, at Fish and Game, the New Hampshire's Fish and Game, basically said, you know, climate change is really much more of a threat for butterfly species that already have such a limited habitat. Um, so that includes the ones that are obviously at the summit of Mount Washington. There's only about 16 miles uh, or I think miles or acres um, that where they can, 16 miles of mountain ranges where they can um currently have habitat. So that's a really small amount and um, it's unclear where that would sort of be displaced to um, as the climate changes. I mean, most people think of monarchs too, which are down like 90%, which I saw in your article, like they're not endangered. I think they were endangered a couple times in the early 2000s, but uh, it's it's not great. I mean, they're such a fragile creature. I, I'd imagine it's very hard for them to survive the huge changes that we're seeing with climate and just people moving into different spaces. The monarchs are a great point. I'm glad you bring that up um, because that sort of indicates that it is not just a problem for, or it's possible that it could not be just a problem for the sort of most vulnerable species. And you're absolutely right. So they're not considered endangered because there's still many, many of these butterflies around. But when you look at that trend and just how dramatically the population has dropped off, it still kind of indicates there might be an issue here. And what I heard from Fishing Game is that they don't have a lot of great baseline data about the butterflies, the sort of more common species of butterflies to begin with. So that's really what this project is about. And they're asking sort of just volunteers around the state. Um, there's an app called iNaturalist that you can download on your phone. And then if you see just a butterfly in your garden or in the woods when you're out for a walk, you can take a picture of it. And there's sort of a crowdsourced way of identifying what kind of butterfly that is and then uploading that to the state's database. And so as they move forward in future years, what they're hoping is they'll get enough data to sort of have be able to say over time, OK, here's what we know now about how the population is trending. Is there another you know, type of butterfly species that we need to be concerned about? 
Yeah, it's the the recurring issue with whether it's politics to the environment to anything. It's a matter of data. It's it's so hard to really keep track of, especially when you're talking a butterfly that can literally fly to a different state. So I mean, you you're speaking with New Hampshire based people with the state, but I mean, ultimately, as they migrate to different parts of the country, it must be very hard to keep track of these populations. I will say they've had um, success in a similar tracking effort when it comes to birds, Um, just really like partnering with groups like the Audubon of New Hampshire um, and and groups that have expertise in these areas and then training volunteers about here's how you identify a species, here's where you log it, um, and then getting a clearer picture of where in the state certain populations are, the habitats that they're requiring, and which way they're trending. And this Mount Washington species, I guess, is also in the discussions as they figure out what they're doing with the Cog Railway, which obviously has a huge impact on Mount Washington. That's right. And and I did ask the wildlife biologists about that. They have not yet officially weighed in, but they said that's sort of a part of their job when there's an official proposal before the state that it's something that they will look at because it is an endangered and listed species. So um, they have to take consideration about how any sort of development in that habitat would affect um, these butterflies. So let's move off from something that reminds us of summer to something that reminds us of the uh, terrible electric situation and cold situation we're entering into here as we get closer and closer to January. But it looks like there's uh, co-ops electric rates are going to be decreasing in February. So before we dive into specifically what's going on with these rates, can you uh, give a refresher on like the three big players and how how often those rates are updated in the state? Yeah, absolutely. So in the state, there are essentially three regulated utilities. Um, It's Liberty, Eversource, which is the state's largest utility, and Unitel. Um, So what we've seen basically is those those regulated utilities in the co-op as well, they all can update their electricity rates two times a year, just basically to reflect what's going on in the market and how much they have to pay. I will say also, um, none of these utilities are making a profit off of the cost of electricity. It's supposed to be a direct, and it is a direct pass through to ratepayers. Um, but what we saw when these rates were last adjusted towards the end of the summer is that they really went up dramatically. Um, and so it's been, you know, a topic of of concern. A lot of people obviously have been seeing that and feeling that reflected in their bills going up pretty significantly. Um, and then what we just the information we just recently got is the electric cooperative um, announced its new rates. Those are going to start, as you mentioned, AJ, in February, and they'll go down um, pretty significantly from about 17 cents to 13.8 cents. And just to give a sense, so Eversource just got a 20 cent rate approved. Um, Liberty has a 22 cent proposal at the PUC and Unitel has a 26 cent rate um, that took place, took effect in December and it will last through July. Unitel has been on a little bit of a different schedule, but with this uh, next 
cycle, it will start become the same schedule as all the other utilities. I mean, ultimately, is this coming down to the fact that natural gas is kind of leveled out? We're seeing just such extreme uh, jumps in natural gas, which is a considerable amount of electricity in the northeast region where we where we get our electricity generated is from that. Um, with with the war situation, Ukraine kind of leveling off a bit and gas kind of moving around and whatever the new world of it is, is that, is that kind of having an impact? Are you thinking? Oh, yeah, I think natural gas, the cost of that just absolutely is going to be dictating the costs that we'll see. We'll see here in the region. Um, that's what energy experts have sort of been pointing to all along. As, as you mentioned, our region is incredibly dependent on natural gas. And so when those markets really went haywire um, with the invasion of Ukraine and the conflict there, uh, that really, really drove prices up pretty dramatically. And I think leveling off is kind of the right term, at least when it comes to those three regulated utilities, they their rates did come down, but very, very slightly. So Eversource's latest rate was uh, two cents less. So it's not as significant. I guess that's, you know, around 10% decrease and um, Liberty went down 0.2 cents. So really pretty steady and um, tapering off, but not not the kind of decrease that we saw with the co-op. Um, and the co-op does purchase power in a, in a bit of a different way. So the regulated utilities um, have to present rates to the Public Utilities Commission. That regulation means that they, can, they are only allowed to go to market two times per year. And what the co-op does, it, it has more of an active management of its portfolio, so it has more flexibility um, and it's able to go out continually to market. Um, and so if there is a good deal that comes up or what they deem to be a good deal, they can buy a smaller contract and sort of layer those contracts. Um, and there is an investigation right now at the Public Utilities Commission about whether you know, the regulatory structure should change because... Obviously, the co-op has been successful in sort of keeping its prices pretty consistently lower than the regulated utilities. So the question is, well, is there something from that model that we could take and apply to the to the way the regulated utilities do business to to help maybe keep prices lower for everybody? I mean, it's bananas that it's only twice a year that the these um, these energy suppliers are are adjusting their rates. I mean, I I mean, ultimately, it probably has a bit of adding stability to the market, which is the main reason why that's going on, which is kind of bypassed by a lot of people. So you don't see like the crazy, ridiculous surges like you saw in Texas when they had their um, their cold snap two years ago. Wow, time flies. I don't remember how far back it was, but that was really bad. And it was that month, it, it shot up like thousands of percent higher. And we don't necessarily have those extreme changes, though we might be stuck with a higher than expected rate like we're in the current situation of for six months. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point. So talking with the state's consumer advocate, Don Priest, who you know monitors all of this really closely, he'll talk a lot about, you know, ratepayers want to be shielded from that kind of volatility. Like knowing how much you're going to have to pay is really important when you think about setting a budget. So knowing, you know, this is how much I have to set aside per month to be able to afford my electric bill and, and having that understanding from month to month and year to year, you know, about what you can expect to pay. If you start going on the sort of day by day market of energy, like you said, it just, it can be really dramatically different 
Um, and that would really expose people to a great deal of, of volatility um, that could be really hard for people to, to plan for. And this is a general consumer protection side to it also where it, it if where you could get pri- to to uh, give less benefit of the doubt to the electric suppliers like their business they they're trying to to break even or make a profit obviously because they're a, a business uh, if they have to eat like a, a crazy amount of uh, of loss one month you with the the six month rotation you hope that it'll even out over time and it's less prone to corruption with kind of taking as much as they humanly can from uh, the consumer. Well, and one of the things we have seen that's been interesting and I've been tracking recently, so there's these sort of six-month bid periods. Um, Liberty Utilities and Eversource recently went out to bid, and they were able to get all of the power that they needed for uh, small and residential customers, but both of them had trouble getting enough power and actually failed to get enough power for their commercial Hmm. big customers. So they each could get about three months worth of that power, but not the other three months. So they have to go out to bid a second time. And that is um, not a situation we've seen before. And that has to do with this volatility in the market, exactly what you're saying. An energy supplier who's putting forth a bid has to bet and say, if I charge X amount, I will at least break even or make a profit on that. If they bet too low, they could risk bankruptcy. And so the number of bidders willing to bet on this energy market has been very, very small, like, you know, one or two. And then in some of these cases, obviously there was nobody who was making an acceptable bid. Um, I mean, there's only so many ways you can find electricity in New England, too. It's not like they can magically pop up a huge wind farm or solar farm in the mountains of New Hampshire with lakes and everything and the cold, brutal winters. It's the reason why we still rely so much on natural gas and why there's even still a backup coal plant over in this part of the state. Mm -hmm. And it's not even that there's an issue of supply necessarily. It's just... For the suppliers, it's not necessarily clear how to price, mm. um, and that has to do with how expensive things things could get, and particularly liquid natural gas, um, which comes in on ships, and those ships can just sort of ditch their contracts that they might have with the Northeast and go to a higher bidder in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, especially in light of uh, recent worldwide events, the complexity of electric in the uh, United States states is uh, it's a messy situation. All right, let's move over in the last five minutes here to an article we wrote about the cost of New Hampshire search and rescue missions continuing to rise. Kind of correlates a little bit, probably, to what we were just talking about with the cost of uh, of oil it, it, it being so crazy, especially if you're introducing airlines into it. But also, I mean, if we're hyperextending the the staff that are having to do these search and rescue operations, it's it's going to get more expensive. Yeah, you're definitely right, and that was something that came up in talking with the search and rescue staff at the state. Is that you know, gas prices have gone up as, you know, people have been able to feel in their day to day and the cost of fuel rising does definitely drive these missions up. Um, what's important to note is that the number of rescues that they're doing has actually been fairly consistent over the past five years. Um, they've seen, you know, as few as 
18 rescues in a year. That was in 2018. Um, in 2021, there were as many as 24. So far, we don't have all the numbers yet for this year, but uh, Colonel Kevin Jordan estimated that we would be around 20 fatalities this year. Um, and that is pretty in line with where things have been at in the past. But I was just looking back to see how much this has cost. And in 2013, it was around $190,000 that search and rescue spent. And in 2022, the department reported spending $545,000. Wow, um, like a 400% increase. That that's uh, That's a crazy amount. It's a significant jump. And they're requesting for 2024 about 418, $418,000 and 434,000 for 2025. So the costs are still climbing and it was I was interested to learn um you know the the range of costs for a search. So if you're talking about a few hour search with just a couple people out in the woods, that can be between $500 and $600. A five-day search could be as much as $150,000. Um, and in any case where you have to use a helicopter, that can add $80,000 to the bill right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, is it partly that people are becoming braver and braver and going further out, so they're having to search a little more aggressively further into nature than they would have previously? Also, one of the big things that's driving the increase in call is increased cell phone service, actually. So people are able to make that call for help and they're doing it. Um, so Colonel Jordan was saying, you know, in the past, people would kind of have this recognition of going out means I am taking my life in my hands and I'm going to pack accordingly. I'm going to have all the extra layers. I'm going to have that compass. And now people take their phones and feel like that's their security blanket of, you know, if anything goes wrong, I just make a call for help and I'll be, I'll be saved. I'll be rescued. Um, and he was saying, you know, even in those cases, it can be a few hours before a search and rescue team can arrive. So, you still have to be thinking about what layers you'll need, having enough water, having enough food. All of those things are still just just as important. The, I can only imagine the swearing that was going on at Fishing Game when Apple announced their new GPS feature on the latest iPhone where you could do a search via put in a, an emergency call be, with the uh, new GPS transmitters they put in there. I mean, it, it's people need to be need to be thinking things through if they're going out into nature. You can't just magically show up with a, a windbreaker, no food, no shelter, no game plan, and not tell anyone where you're going exactly. It's just not safe. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's right. Just be prepared before you go out. Of course, these services are there if people need them as a last resort. Um, but ultimately, I think the more informed you are and the better prepared than Every, everyone wins in that in that scenario because there's really some of these cases have just been so heartbreaking that we've seen recently with, you know, really young people um, perishing on, on the trails. And, yeah, the weather can just change so fast yeah. when you're at a high altitude. And it's it's like a different day when you're, you know, starting out at the base of a hike to the getting to the top. Um, but they are, you know, some of these calls, they're even able to just reorient people. Um, there was one 
the other day, I think they were even able to just do it over the phone. Wow. Um, somebody called in and they could use the the GPS coordinates from the cell phone to sort of get them back on track as, as far as where they needed to go to find the trail again. Because, um, yeah, visibility can be really bad when you're above tree line. And if you sort of lose track of where the trail is, um, it can be easy to get disoriented. Amanda Goki, reporter over the New Hampshire Bulletin, newhampshirebulletin.com to get more from them. They join the show uh, most Fridays here on New Hampshire Headlines. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. We'll be right back after this.